0: Before we hop into today's bonus episode, I just wanted to record an intro for you guys real quick. And before I do that, I wanted to give a huge, huge shout out and thank you to Rob over at No Good Music. I mean, Rob and Jeremy for providing us all this great bonus content this month. It was really exciting to be able to share some of the No Good Music content that they provided us with we heard our intervie- interview with sarah karloff and then you recently heard the part one of the universal monster ranking and this is the um second part of the universal monster ranking so be sure to go check out rob matt and jeremy over at no good music that's k-n-o-w good music Generally, they do talk about music, but occasionally for, like, Halloween, they do horror, and Christmas, they usually do, like, Christmas-type movies, I believe. Um, All I know is their holiday episodes are usually my favorite, but every episode is good. And I know Rob just posted a really great interview as well um, with a musician and comedian, too. So, please go check them out, you know give them some love, listen to some of their episodes, we wouldn't have been able to provide all of this good bonus content without them this month. And one thing I learned that I wanted to talk about, I, you know, if you guys know me in person, I love horror movies, very selective horror movies, but I also love board games. And one of my favorite board games that Jeremy actually introduced me to, is called horrified and i'll never forget i talked about horrified after jeremy like introduced me to it or told me about it i told my family about it and so we i don't remember exactly what happened but i think we bought it at the store like a couple like a week or two before christmas i have the hiccups damn it (laughs) and um I was so excited to show Jimmy oh my god like I got horrified I can't wait to play it and he was so mad because he got me horrified for Christmas and I felt awful but anyways the past is the past and horrified is one of my favorite games it is a co-op game which you can play you technically can play as one person and it came in super super handy when I got COVID over Christmas a couple years ago I played by myself like 24 7 But you can play, I believe it's up to six players, five or six players. And it's all centered around the universal monsters. So you're working as a team to try to defeat the monsters. You've got the creature, the mummy, Dracula, the wolfman, the invisible man, Frankenstein, and the bride of Frankenstein. So you play against two monsters. That's like the beginning level, but you can play up to like three or four at a time. I don't know. When Jeremy and his family play, they do, like, wild, crazy shit. I'm, like, a baby, and I'm just like, no, let's play against the two easy monsters and see if we could win. Uh, and I always win, so. I don't, not always, but I like the I I don't want to be super stressed out when I'm playing a game, but it's super cool because, you know, I like I said, I've always loved this game, but listening to these No Good Music um, Universal episodes the past month, I've learned so much more about this board game that makes me excited to play it again. Like because I've never been a Universal Monsters person, so I I know the characters, but I didn't know a ton about like their stories or any of the other characters in the movie. So I learned like just listening, hearing them talk about the different movies, the plots, the settings. I was able to relate some of it back to the board game, which was super exciting for me. Like, I know on the Invisible Man, when you are playing to defeat him, you have to get an item from five different locations, I believe. And one of the locations is the inn. And I'm like, that's a really, like, weird, odd location, you know? But now I just kind of put two and two together because they mentioned it in the podcast. You know he's at the inn and then another part of the game is occasionally you'll draw cards and then you'll have a what they call a villager come on the board which it's like these um, they're not players but like these side quests that you have to do that you have to get them to like a safe location on the board I don't remember all of their names but there's like I know Fritz is one of them for sure, and then I want to say Elizabeth, maybe, I want to say Cranford, but I think I'm thinking of the Macabre Mountain premiere, oh my god, Um, but a lot of the names that you'll hear either mentioned in the previous episode, but I think a lot of them mentioned in this episode correlate back to the board game Horrified, and it was just super fun for me to listen And relate it back to... Because I haven't seen any of these movies. Actually, that's a lie. I watched um, Frankenstein before, but I fell asleep like halfway through. So does that really count? I don't know. But it was fun to be able to relate it back to the board game. And see like, okay, that's... I always just thought it was like, why the fuck did they name this random villager Fritz? Why the heck did they name this chick Elizabeth? You know, um, there was another one that I'm forgetting... Maybe I don't know. I don't remember the name, but all of the names, as like Rob and Jeremy were bringing up either locations or names, it like it kept clicking, and it just brought me back to playing this board game, and it was super fun. So, with that being said, I'm gonna stop talking your ear off about like my own personal like (laughs) like for this board game. Horrified, I highly recommend you go get it. Um, it's just super fun, but it was really fun to listen and relate it back to something that i know about and realize why they had an in on this board game and why we had a fritz character and so and so so it was super cool and again please go give no good music some love and support follow subscribe rate review all that good stuff over on no good music because they really did a You know, a huge favor by providing us awesome bonus content the month of October. And so it was the perfect way to finish out Spooky Season, and I am very grateful for them.
1: An whole day's work ruined by a foolish ignorant.
0: The very day we announced our engagement, he told me of his experiments. He said he was on the verge of a discovery so terrific that he doubted his own sanity. There was a strange look in his eyes.
1: We Egyptians are not permitted to dig up our ancient dead. Only foreign museums. How did you know about the earrings in my room? Oh, I'm psychic. Every time I see a beautiful girl, I know all about her, just like that. After
0: what's happened, I can't bear to look
1: at it. What's happened? I
0: can't tell you. I
1: can't.
2: Oh, but you must, you must tell yeah. me. I have a right to know.
0: tell you we can learn more
2: from it if it's a lie.
1: Please, what is it you found?
2: It sounds incredible, but it appeared
1: to be human. It's the greatest find yet. Nothing compares to it.
2: Hey everybody, this is Rob. And Jeremy. And we are back with part two of the Universal Monster Films. And we're about to talk about the last three. We're on your number two. So to recap, we
3: covered the mummy, the wolfman, and And the creature from the Black Lagoon. Yeah. To this point.
2: Okay. So my number two is Dracula. Okay. So we match there. What number was Dracula for you. I had him at number five. Okay. So I guess we could talk about Dracula.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh This one,
3: this one really, so I'm glad you have it ranked high. It did really well on our poll, which at the end I'll go on those, talk about those numbers, but I was very disappointed with this movie. Oh yeah? Yeah. I went into it with like really, really high expectations, I think. Mm Mm-hmm. And I was let down. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And that doesn't mean the movie was mm. bad. Let me just, you know, clarify that. But I just wasn't
2: blown away. I think I like, I think I like it because like, I've read the book. And I don't know. I've always liked Bella Lugosi as him portraying Dracula. Mm-hmm. It's the first, I think, vampire movie. Mm-hmm. I know Jeremy's not too fond of vampire movies. Besides, uh, wasn't Nosferatu before that. Oh, yeah. Nos- I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. it was. Okay. <laughs> before we get into the movie itself, I have something on... Now, as collectors, I know we... I mean, we do collect... We do collect posters, but I have a couple original, but not that old posters. Right. I wanted to talk about the original Dracula poster.
1: Okay.
2: okay. So, the the article states that the one sheet of Dracula becomes the most expensive poster ever sold. But this really isn't true. I don't know why that's the headline. Because there's a poster um, for Metropolis, which was... I want to say Metropolis was like early 1900s. And so this poster and this article, let's see, is from 2017. And this poster sold for $525,800. Wow. But I think the Metropolis was in the 600 range. And I think it still remains the most expensive poster. So I just wanted to mention that there's not much on this. And it's the poster where he's Bella Lugosi's, you know, face. And it's kind of colorful poster. Yep. He's kind of giving a ominous, you know, look. Um, So, there's not much on this, but I just wanted to mention that as far as posters. I did have something on the mummy, but that one sold for a lot too. But you can imagine these. First of all, we just... uh, Today, we talked to Sarah Karloff. We can say that now. Mm -hmm. Uh, We did talk about people collecting back then. uh, We talked about them just pasting over posters. And people didn't save this stuff. You know, they, it was in the theater for a while, and then they just threw these posters out Or do you want this? Yep. And maybe someone tacked it up on their wall and just got rid of it. And I think I read that there's, in fact, I think I read that there's only two of these posters in existence. Wow. So, that's why it's priced so high, too. Yep. So, let's talk about the movie itself. This was another
3: one of those movies, like The Mummy, where there was silence in a lot of places. So I, you know, had to kind of constantly wonder if it froze up or Mm -hmm. if I was waiting. And then when there was dialogue, it was, to me at least, very dry and kind of not really interesting or exciting. Yeah, (laughs) Bella Lugosi did a great job as Dracula. I just didn't think anybody that surrounded him in the cast did anything to lift his performance up and make the movie that much better.
2: I think he was good at being creepy and uh, yeah, I don't think he had many lines in the movie. Right. I do like the way it was filmed and, you know, um, just the creepiness of it. Also, the one scene, which I probably have in my notes, is, is the brides in the beginning. They were kind of creepy.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Okay. So, the film premiered February 12th, 1931, got an 82% audience score. The budget was 341000 on this one. And uh, 75 minutes. And within 48 hours of its opening at New York's Roxy Theater, it had sold 50,000 tickets. That's awesome. Uh, building a momentum that culminated in a $700,000 profit. And it's the largest of Universal's 1931 releases. So we got Bella Lugosi as Count Dracula, Helen Chandler as Mina, David Manners as John Harker and Dwight Fry. He plays Renfield. Now, Alice Cooper wrote and recorded a song as a tribute to Dwight Fry, Mm. believe it or not. The Ballad of Dwight Fry, I don't know if you ever heard of it. But he spelled the name F-R-Y because Dwight Fry's last name was F-R-Y-E and it was on the 1971 LP, Love It to Death. And on stage, this song would be portrayed with Alice Cooper in a straitjacket trying to escape and finally breaking free at the end of the song to strangle a nurse with the ties from the straitjacket. Then I've seen that one performed live and I
3: didn't realize that was the name of the song. Yeah. Unless he just does that performance.
2: I don't think he mentions the name in the song. So maybe that's why. Okay.
3: Because I've seen that. I don't know if it was with you. But I know when I saw them open for Motley Crue out in Michigan, mm-hmm. they he was in a straight jacket yeah. and he did the whole strangling of the nurse. And I was like, whoa, that's
2: that was weird. It was really cool, you know, cool visually. But I think he does that each show. So yeah. I'm pretty okay. sure we saw it. Yeah. And then we have Edward Van Sloan as Van Helsing. A couple other people. Herbert Bunston, Francis Dade as Lucy. And let's see. Oh, Joan Standing as Nurse Briggs. And... In an error on the opening credit, she's misidentified as maid <laughs> instead of nurse. Bram Stoker's novel had already been filmed without permission as Nosferatu. Isn't it Bram Stoker? B-R-A-M. Bram. Yeah. Yeah. Bram, Bram. Uh, I don't know. I think it's Bram. I don't but know. That's okay. Tomato, tomato. There you go. Uh, in 1922. So that film was made without permission. And Stoker's widow sued for plagiarism and copyright infringement, and the courts decided in her favor, and essentially ordering that all prints of Nosferatu be destroyed. Huh. And of course, they weren't. So we <laughs> can still say it. Yeah. Young Hollywood producer, Carl Lemie. I was gonna, like I said, I want to say Lemiel, because the way it's spelled. Mm-hmm also saw the box office potential in Stoker's Gothic Chiller, and he legally acquired the novel's film rights. Initially, he wanted Dracula to be a spectacle on a scale with the lavish silent films The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Notre Dame, and The Phantom of the Opera. Now, Universal Pictures paid $40,000 for all rights to the novel and stage plays, so they would have exclusive rights to the Dracula character. Uh, Universal also brought Pulitzer Prize winning novelist Louis Bromfield to pen the script to fit the grand scale vision. Bromfield tried to bring together the novel and the stage play and in his draft suggested that Dracula should be two people, ghoulish old man at the beginning of the film, who by traveling to London and feeding on blood gets rejuvenated into drawing drawing, drawing room Dracula of the theater. Now, Jonathan Harker was supposed to travel to Transylvania in the opening scenes of the film. Because if you remember the film with it Keanu Reeves, who's in the. Um, Tom Cruise interview no. with the vampire? No, the film Dracula with Gary Oldman. I have no idea. You've never seen that film? No. Okay. Sorry. The film, I think it's from the 90s, Dracula, we have John Harker, the character John Harker and that's the character in the novel. It is Keanu Reeves, by the way. But in this one, we have Renfield. Now, Renfield is in the newer Dracula. I say newer, it's pretty old now. But in this one, Renfield is the one who goes, you know, to the castle. And as in the stage play, Dracula was supposed to kiss Mina passionately on the lips but those things never made it into the movie, either because they were considered too expensive. How's <laughs> a kiss expensive, I don't know. Or replaced by rewritten scenes or were deemed too risky. So that would be too risky. right? So Bromfield was soon replaced with Garrett Fort. Fort turned to the stage play. And it was already a huge hit on Broadway. And it became a blueprint as the production gained momentum. So, the film was originally intended for Conrad Vett, V-E-I-D-T, who had just appeared in Universal's The Man Who Laughs and The Last Performance. So, when Vett returned to Germany fearing his English was not good enough for talkies, Universal looked to Lon Chaney, star of The Hunchback, Phantom of the Opera. And I think that was Lon... Yeah, that was Lon Chaney's father.
1: Hmm. Interesting.
2: Although at the time Cheney was under contract to uh, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, he had already decided a remake of The Unholy Three, which would be his first sound film. And then, after his sudden death, casting the title role proved problematic. So initially, uh, Lamy was not at all interested in Lugosi, in spite of good reviews for his stage portrayal, and Lamy. Instead considered more established screen actors with John Ray in All Quiet on the Western Front being announced as cast in the role. So, Lugosi lobbied hard and ultimately won the executives over, thanks in part to him accepting a paltry $500 per week salary for seven weeks of work. Wow. So, he got paid $3,500. Lou Ayers was hired to play Jonathan Harker, only to be replaced with Robert Ames because of a filming conflict. And then Ames was replaced, so we got a lot of people, because he had a messy divorce oh, okay. <laughs> that hit the headlines. Even back then, you know, you know, if you were in the tabloids, <laughs> <laughs> they didn't want you. So September 29th, 1930, Dracula began shooting at Universal City, and uh, it had a 36-day schedule. Todd Browning shot scenes of Dracula's castle and Borgo Pass all the first week of production. And according to numerous accounts, the production is alleged to have been a mostly disorganized affair with the usually meticulous Todd Browning leaving cinematographer Carl Frond to take over during much of the shoot, making Frond something of an uncredited director of the film. And we've heard of this before with The Nightmare Before Christmas. Right. <laughs> with Tim Burton. So Edward Van Sloan, he played Van Helsing on Broadway. Opposite Lugosi. So I guess Lugosi did play Dracula on Broadway and he reprised his role on screen, but the actor wondered why the film version reduced the large mirror used in the play to a small cigarette box with a mirrored lid. He didn't think much about the film. In a letter to his nephew, he once wrote, That reminds me of your failure to see the Dracula film on TV. How lucky you were. What must it be, like today, overplayed, overwritten, altogether lousy. <laughs> this is the guy that was in the film. So Todd Browning, uh, he remembered actress Helen Chandler from the 1928 Broadway play The Silent House, and based on that performance, chose her for Mina, and she becomes the mistress to Bella Lugosi's Count Dracula. Now, her salary was 750 per week, making her the highest paid member of the cast. And at the time of filming, she already battled severe alcoholism and she was known to laugh at Lugosi's mirror ritual when they were shooting or when, see, Lugosi had this, he would look in the mirror and say, I am Dracula Mm -hmm. and she would laugh at him. So I'm sure he didn't like that. And before the film was even released, Lugosi worried that it would cause him to be typecast which we talked about, uh, with Sarah Karloff, he reportedly rejected an offer to reprise his role as Dracula in another stage tour of the play, stating, no, not at any price. When I'm through with this picture, I hope to never hear of Dracula again. I cannot stand it. I do not intend that it shall possess me. (laughs) Interestingly enough, when Lugosi passed away in 1956, I don't know if you know this, Jeremy. (laughs) He was buried wearing one of the Dracula capes. I did know that, actually. And his full costume, as well as his Dracula ring. And contrary to popular belief, Lugosi never requested to be buried in his cloak. Right. So, Bella G. Lugosi, which is his son, confirmed on numerous occasions that he and his mother, Lillian, made the decision but believed that is what his father would have wanted. So the music from this film, um, now owing to the cost of adding an original musical score to a film soundtrack, no score has ever been composed specifically for the film. The music heard during the opening credits is an excerpt from Act Two of Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake and was reused in 1932 for The Mummy, which we talked about. Yep. During this theater scene where Dracula meets Dr. Seward... Harker, Mina, and Lucy, the end of the overture to Wagner's die Meistersinger von (laughs) Nurnberg can also be heard as well as the dark opening of Schubert's Unfinished Symphony in B minor. So there's your music. (laughs) And now we're going to talk about the movie itself. Okay, so we're going to talk about the movie. Um, We first see a carriage riding through some rough terrain and the carriage stops at a small village when one of the passengers gets off the carriage, he tells the driver to leave his luggage on the carriage since he's going to Borgo Pass to meet Count Dracula. His name is Renfield. So the innkeeper tells him that he mustn't go there. He tells him that Dracula and his wives take the form of wolves and bats at night and feed on the blood of the living. And Renfield's response is, well, that's all superstition. So he tells the innkeeper he's not afraid and he has to go. Before he gets back on the carriage, the innkeeper's wife gives him a cross. What's interesting is in the carriage, there's a woman who is wearing round glasses. Mm -hmm. I think she's noted as having the first speaking role in a horror movie. In a horror movie. First woman to have a speaking role? Yeah, first woman. (laughs) Interesting. Okay. Her name is Carla Lemie, and her uncle was Carl Lemie. Who owned Universal. And I meant to have it with me, but I actually wrote to her. Mm. She has since passed away, but she lived to be like 104 or something. Wow. And I have a note card and her like mentioning the movie,
3: Mm, which is cool. cool. That is cool.
2: The first time we see Dracula, I think it's pretty frightening. We see one of his wives coming out of a coffin and then Dracula where the camera zooms in slow motion and he stands there and his brides are walking up behind him. I thought that was kind of haunting. So, the carriage pulls up and it's pretty funny because the driver just throws his luggage off. Yep. He just tosses it. Mm-hmm. And then we see Dracula, which I don't know at the time if people knew it was Dracula, driving the coach. Right. He's got some something around his head. Renfield doesn't realize it's him. And then at one point in the trip, uh, Dracula turns into a bat. Renfield's, I think, leaning out of the window and he sees a bat, and the horses are just going by themselves. And then he gets out of the carriage and the driver, of course, is gone. That little trivia is the spider webs used in the castle mm-hmm. were made by shooting rubber cement out of a rotary gun. Oh, interesting. <laughs> okay. Like something like a drill, something that spun around, mm-hmm. you know? So, Renfield meets Dracula. This is when Bela Lugosi says, I think his most famous quote, after hearing some uh, wolves howl in the distance, He's like, listen to, (laughs) I don't know if I can, listen to them, children of the night. What music they make, (laughs) something like that. And Renfield keeps worrying about what happened to his luggage and his papers. And I think up until this point we have no idea why Renfield is meeting with Dracula. Right. Earlier he tells the villagers that it's a matter of business. He's offered something to eat and mentions his papers. I think Dracula mentions that Renfield has, up until this point, kept. It's secret while he's, while he, why he's meeting him. Uh, but now we find that Dracula wants to lease a place called Carfax Abbey in England, and he has chartered a ship for the following evening. We have a couple scenes. Uh, Renfield cuts his finger, and Dracula is drawn to it from the other side of the room. Some strange reason there's a bed in the dining area. Uh, Renfield's cross drops down from his neck as Dracula is about to, I think, bite him. Mm-hmm. And Dracula pulls his cape up and turns, which is now like a classic Dracula move. And I mentioned before, I like when he, the, they show the isolated shots of Dracula. Him staring with the shadows around them, you know, at the camera. So Dracula pours Renfield a goblet of wine. He asks Dracula if he's drinking.
1: Aren't you drinking? I never drink. Why? Why?
2: So Dracula leaves Renfield for the night. Or does he? Renfield starts to feel kind of stuffy and goes over to open one of the floor-length windows. He opens it, sees a bat, and faints, only to have Dracula's creepy wives approach his passed-out body. And he shooes them away, Dracula does, and crouches down and appears to go for his neck. Now next we see a ship being tossed around the sea. Now the scenes for this were actually from a 1925 silent film called Soundbreaker. Mm. Okay. (laughs) So that was um, pretty popular back then, is to use other scenes from other movies that fit in. Makes sense. So now at this point, Renfield has pretty much lost his mind. At first you think he's been turned into a vampire, but I think he can't handle what's going on, like the truth about Dracula. That he's, you know, sucking blood, killing people. Right. And another great visual is Dracula when he's on the boat is when he's in the shadows and his eyes seem like they have a glow like around them. And then the ship drifts into uh, Whitby Harbor after the storm and it's discovered that everyone is dead except Renfield. And Renfield is admitted to a sanitarium. A little bit later, we see the words London and Count Dracula is on the loose in foggy old London. We see him creep out in front of an innocent flower girl and he sinks his teeth into her. Do you know, you want to know the flower girl's real name? Mm. Morticia. (laughs) This is my stupid like uh, 12-year-old brain, Anita Harder. (laughs) That's her name. Hmm. So, next we see Dracula, he's going to the theater, see the London Symphony Orchestra. As the Usher girl goes to seat Dracula, he hypnotizes her so he can meet uh, Dr. Seward, who is one of those luxury boxes. And with him are John Mina and her friend Lucy. So, Lu- Lucy and Mina are back at their apartment and they're talking about Dracula before they go to bed. And it seems Lucy has a crush on the count. hmm
0: Laugh
2: all you like. I think he's fascinating. Um, but Lucy's just in luck, since the Count is lurking outside the house near her gate. Soon there's a bat at the window, and next we see the Count next to her bed. Lucy has fallen asleep, and Dracula creeps in and goes to bite her neck. So Lucy is dead, and the doctors notice she had bite marks on her neck. That's in an operating room? And it reminded me of the Seinfeld episode where Jerry and Kramer... With the Junior Mint. Yeah, with the Junior <laughs> Mint. I was waiting for that. Yep. Now we find out Renfield is being kept at Dr. Seward's Sanitarium. And it so happens that the sanitarium is connected to Carfax Abbey, where Dracula is. But it's it's kind of strange, I think, that Renfield and Dracula ended up in the same place. Yeah. You know. So they're trying to figure out why Renfield goes off for hours. And he's why he's eating bugs. They actually bring up Nosferatu. Yeah. Uh, Van Helsing is one of the doctors and after hearing a wolf howling in the distance, he brings out Wolfbane and shows it to Renfield who gets angry and tells him he knows too much to live. So, we kind of figure out at this point that Renfield is still being controlled by Dracula. He's lurking outside Renfield's window and Renfield is pretty happy that Dracula is back. That they've been reunited. Uh, Dracula pays a visit to Mina as Renfield pleads with him from his window not to go to her. And the Count visits John and Mina. Van Helsing is there too and notices that they are standing by a mirror and Dracula is not throwing off a reflection. So Van Helsing confronts Dracula and opens a box with a mirror in it and Dracula swats it away. He then explains that he does not like mirrors. But before leaving, he tells Van Helsing, he's complimenting Van Helsing that he is a wise man because he's on to (laughs) him. Yeah. So John goes out on the balcony and he sees a wolf out on the lawn. So we figure out that Dracula is also able to change into a wolf. So Mina goes outside and Dracula's creeping by a tree and he lures her to him, spreading out his cape. A maid soon runs in screaming, and they find Mina lying on the ground. But Mina seems okay the next day, but frazzled as she talks to Van Helsing. And that's what I couldn't figure out, was if he... She wasn't a vampire. Like, what did he do? What did he do? Yeah. Yeah. So at this point, we're not sure what Mina is. Um, And it seems... Because she has a conversation about a woman in white. And I think at that point, it's daytime. So it's not night. The comic relief is this character named Martin. He's one of the sanitarium workers and he's in charge of watching uh, Renfield who keeps escaping and he calls Renfield a loony. Dracula confronts Van Helsing and Dracula tells him that he should return to the old country. Van Helsing is having none of this and tells Dracula he'll have his house torn down stone by stone and drive a stake through his heart. Now, Dracula tries to control Van Helsing with his hypnotic powers. It looks like it's working at first, but Van Helsing fights fights it off. And as Dracula confronts him, Van Helsing draws out a cross and Dracula retreats. Yeah. That scene, that was one that I had marked down to kind of talk about, it felt...
3: It didn't feel genuine to me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Dracula's... The, and they're just talking like they're regular people. And then, out of nowhere, he pulls out... Because... Dracula says something about, you know, not having the stake and you're not going to be able to defeat me or whatever. Yeah. And then he pulls out the cry of something better and he pulls out the cry. <laughs> yeah. And then Dracula just runs away. Yeah. Like with his tail between his legs
2: and it, it was, I don't know. Yeah, there was no um, conf- big confrontation. No. Dracula's kind of a wimp. Uh, so the next scene we find out Mina's, Mina won't go to bed as the nurse leaves her room. But for some reason, Mina appears on the balcony. She's at her door and then she's, I don't know. Uh, John is fascinated by how great Mina looks. He says it looks like she's changed. She gets an intense look on her face and appears she wants to bite his neck, but they sit and talk. A bat keeps flying around them, which we know is Dracula. Mina gets uh, some crazy eyes as she's looking at John and probably—and she is probably about to bite him. But Van Helsing sees what's going on and brings out his cross. And Mina is in hysterics. And then she says something about Dracula. Uh, Martin appears with one one of the maids. And he's got a rifle and starts shooting at the bat. But he misses. And then Renfield escapes again. And is seen outside Carfax Abbey by John and Van Helsing. And Dracula has retrieved Mina from her bed and brings her to the abbey. So Renfield confronts Dracula on the steps inside the abbey. And Dracula throws him down the steps as John and Van Helsing enter the abbey. Then they run after Dracula and Mina in what looks like it's an area below the abbey. It's like the catacombs (laughs) or something. Yeah. And then they find two coffins, one containing Dracula. And the other is empty. I don't know. It seems like this film is, even though I like this film for the way it looks, it seems like it was kind of thrown together. Yes. <laughs> because you have Dracula on the steps, you know, throwing Renfield down the steps, and then all of a sudden he's in the coffin. Yeah. Like
3: <laughs> I'm so glad you said that. The movie mm-hmm. ended and I went, wait, it's over? What, yeah. what just happened? Mm-hmm. Because it just looked like there was action two minutes ago. And yeah. now, all of a sudden, they go to look in the coffin, and it's empty, and the end. Yeah. I was like, what the... What, what Did I miss something? I actually rewound it ten minutes mm-hmm. to make sure that I didn't yeah. somehow miss
2: something or it skipped. And I was like, it's over. Well, I even have here, the ending is abrupt. Yeah. Van Helsing makes a wooden stake out of one of the lids of the coffin. You don't see him pound it through his chest or anything. He,
3: you don't yeah. see any death yeah. to Dracula. It just... I, yeah. This one was low on my list because it didn't feel... Like, there was no good flow to this movie. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel like the characters were developed very well. It was just a lot of very random dialogue to me. And it just... I think the intent was to, you know, show Dracula's power and... You know, the vampire, how they kind of get that hold of you and, you know, yeah. get that internal life because of that. But I just didn't feel like I was kind of, I guess, brought into the plot enough. They didn't develop it enough for me. It just it yeah. felt thrown no, together. I feel the same way.
2: They never explain if Mina was a vampire, just hypnotized. She yeah. might have just been hypnotized. Correct.
3: I struggled yeah. with that one a lot. The Mummy and Dracula were the two
2: mm. that I really struggled with. Okay, so we're going to go into the next one. And let's see. Well, hold on. Before you do, isn't there one before that?
3: We're both down to our number one. But I know what your number one is. Do you remember what I've said at this point? <laughs> no. Your number one is Frankenstein. Oh yeah. My number one is the Invisible
2: Man. Oh, there man. we go. Okay, I was wondering where that one. And is that that's the one you were impressed with? That was the one I was very impressed with. Okay. Let's do Frankenstein first. All right, cuz Frankenstein got we'll a
3: little out of order. Frankenstein was my number 3. I really really liked it. Number 4 was
2: Invisible Man for me. Yeah. I really liked Frankenstein. That was my number 3. And like I was telling Jeremy earlier my thing is that Frankenstein, Dracula, the Wolfman are movies that I watch every year. Mm-hmm. I watch the um, you know, the sequels. And the other ones I'm not too familiar with, so that's probably why. And they didn't really, it wasn't movies that would blow you away. So, and I couldn't really put those three that I have at the top down a peg or anything. Okay, so we're on to... Frankenstein. Frankenstein.
3: This was one of the ones I had a very difficult time placing because I enjoyed it a lot.
2: So it's at three, but it's like one C, (laughs)
1: you know. (laughs) Frankenstein.
2: Frankenstein is just my absolute favorite, like Universal, of course. I have it at number one. It was great. I got to tell Sarah Karloff that it was my first horror movie. She doesn't like to call them horror movies. Terror. Terror. (laughs) When I was about four years old, when my dad was watching it, in his recliner. And when, Frank, when I saw Frankenstein, I was hiding behind the recliner. Now, not to put down my dad or anything, but the type of person my dad was, I doubt he turned it off, <laughs> you know, like some parents would. So, I doubt my dad would have turned the movie off. You know, I'm watching this. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, maybe my mom came in and got me, but I remember being frightened. And that's like my first memory, basically. One of my first memories of being that young. So this film premiered November twenty first, nineteen thirty-one. It's got an eight point eight out of ten rating with an eighty percent audience score. So scores decently. Mm-hmm. I think higher than the other ones. The budget was two hundred and sixty-two thousand and seven dollars. Movie brought in one million on its first run, and it's seventy minutes long. This one felt yeah. just right. If Colin Clive is Frankenstein, Henry Frankenstein, May Clark as Elizabeth Lavenza. Henry's fiancé and John, Boyles, Bowles? John Bowles as Victor Moritz, Henry's friend. I was confused because I thought there was a Victor Frankenstein and in the original novel, his name is Victor. Mm. So that's what confused me. Okay. I thought it was his brother, Got but it. it's his friend. Now, I have a little... Someone posted the other night, there was a Jeopardy question and this is... You don't see too many trick questions on Jeopardy, but I have to tell you, this is a trick question. Here it is. Of Boris Karloff, Lon Chaney, or Colin Clive, the one who played the title role in the 1931 film Frankenstein.
3: Colin Clive?
2: Yes. And it's a trick question because most people over time call the monster Frankenstein. And it's right. actually Frankenstein's monster. Right. So... Frankenstein's And doctor. what I heard was nobody got the question right. Or the, whoever... Yeah, nobody got the, they thought it was Boris Karloff. Right. <laughs> okay, so we have, let's see, of course, Boris Karloff, he was billed as the monster, but positive that it was. there's a question mark as, you know, it didn't say Boris Karloff mm. in the opening credits. Edward, Edward Van Sloan as Dr. Waldman. Now, he was also in Dracula and the Mummy. And Frederick Kerr as Baron Frankenstein. Who likes to drink, and we'll find out about that. Yep. Dwight Fry as Fritz, Henry's assistant, and we talked about Dwight Fry and uh, a couple other people.
3: But... I don't know what he did in the movie to um, have that hunchback look, but yeah. man, that was great. Yeah, he did a nice <laughs> job, either hunching over or whatever they did to help him out. <laughs> I mean, there's some scenes where he's going to open the
2: door and stuff and he is way, you know, his head is down by his knees. (laughs) I want to watch some other movies with him because he was pretty intense. I can see him being in other, even dramas or something, a pretty intense actor, you know, playing, um, you know, Renfield and then, uh, Fritz. Yeah. Playing Fritz. You know, I've seen young Frankenstein so many times. I want to call him Igor, (laughs) you know? So in 1930, as a result of the success of the film Dracula, the head production, Carl Lamy, we'll hear his name a lot, we have, announced immediate plans for more horror films. So it purchased the rights to John L. Balderstone's planned stage adaptation of Peggy Webling's British stage adaptation (laughs) of Mary Shelley's novel. Immediately following his success in Dracula, Lugosi had hoped to play Henry Frankenstein in the original film concept. However, the actor was expected by producer Carl Lamy to play the monster, a common move for a contract player in a film studio at the time. I guess was to play a monster, I don't know. And although this is regarded as one of the worst decisions in any actor's career, in actuality the part that Lugosi was offered was not the same character that Karloff eventually played. The initial director was Robert Flory, who had re-characterized the monster as a simple killing machine, without a touch of human interest or pathos, unlike the original Shelley novel. And this reportedly caused Lugosi to complain, I was a star in my country, and I will not be a scarecrow over here. Oh, that was good. Thank you. <laughs> Where's the applause? Uh, Flory later wrote that the Hungarian actor didn't show himself very enthusiastic for the role and didn't want to play it. So, Kenneth Strickfaden. I always get these names, like, what is going on? Yeah. There's, there's not like John Smith. No. Uh, he designed the electrical effects that were used in the creation scene. They were so successful that such effects came to be considered an essential part of every subsequent universal film involving Frankenstein's monster. Mm. Accordingly, the equipment used to produce them has come to be referred to in fan circles as Fadens. <laughs> it appears that Faden managed to secure the use of at least one Tesla coil built by the inventor Nikola Tesla himself. Wow, pretty cool. The film opened in New York City at the Mayfair Theater on December fourth, nineteen thirty-one, and it grossed fifty-three thousand dollars in one week. One of our Halloween podcasts—I think it was like two years ago. I did talk about Frankenstein a little bit mm-hmm. and there is a controversial scene in the movie at the time and it's a scene where uh, the monster, see almost said Frankenstein, the monster throws Maria, the little girl, until late and she drowns. Upon its original 1931 release, the second part of this scene, which is when he's throwing her in the lake, was cut by state censorship boards in Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, and New York. Interesting. Um, Those states also objected to a line they considered blasphemous that occurred during Frankenstein's exuberance when he first learns that his creature is alive. And it was, Victor says, Henry, in the name of God. And Henry says, in the name of God, now I know what it feels like to be God. Yeah. So they had a problem with that. Yeah. And Kansas requested the cutting of 32 scenes. Wow. So I guess the movie, they said, the movie would have been cut in half. It would have been like 30 minutes or something. Nice. So eventually, um, they did do an edited version, but not that much editing. This was known as a pre-code film. And I think it's like, you know, when the films weren't rated. Right. But I think they still did, obviously, maybe it was up to the states or the theaters. If they felt something was offensive, they cut things, cut scenes. Interesting. Interesting. Now, it says Universal made cuts from the original camera negative and sadly most of the excise footage is lost. But however, the scene of the girl being thrown into the lake, believe it or not, was rediscovered during the early 1980s. And it was in the collection of the British National Film Archive. Otherwise, we would have never seen that scene. In the Irish Free State, it says... (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what that is. The film was banned on February 5th, 1932, for being demoralizing and unsuitable for children or, and I love this, nervous people.
1: Yeah, okay.
2: Nervous people. (laughs) The film was banned in China due to falling under the category of superstitious films as a result of its strangeness and unscientific elements. Probably still banned there. So the makeup, uh, after casting Boris Karloff as the monster, director James Whale sketched some initial designs that exaggerated Karloff's facial features, and Whale showed the sketches to Jack Pierce, we've mentioned him before, to use as a starting point for the makeup. So Whale and Pierce agreed they didn't want to design to overshadow Karloff's natural features and needed the monster to retain a pitiful humanity. So every morning at 3.30, I guess 3.30 in the morning, Carloff would arrive in the makeup chair, and the process would begin. And since this was before the advent of foam latex, no individual makeup pieces were produced. He had to recreate... Get this. What the hell's that? There's three bugs up there. I don't know. No. What the... They must be coming in the wind, though.
3: <laughs> I don't know what they are, but... <laughs> They're probably beetles. Those two are about to make out with each other, it looks like. If...
2: <laughs> We've got bugs in here.
3: This this is like that creep show episode. That's how it started. Just a couple of bugs. We need Renfield
2: also. in here now because we just noticed there's bugs. We have the window open. Oh, he went around. So we need Renfield in here. Just
3: Jeremy eats bugs. Well, I don't know if you noticed when we were interviewing Sarah, there was something buzzing by oh, the microphone. I thought that was a
2: drone. No,
3: <laughs> outside. No. Oh, okay. There was like a bee or something. It was buzzing right into the <laughs> microphone.
2: So, because um, this was before foam latex, right? Right. You know, now they produce individual pieces that they can apply, like, over and over, right? Right. So, Jack Pierce had to recreate the makeup every single morning from scratch. And removing the makeup took between one and two hours to completely peel off. And this involved breaking it down with various oils and acids, then literally prying the makeup off of Karloff's face. We asked Sarah about this. It
3: did not scar his face.
2: Yeah. (laughs) So Wikipedia is wrong on him having scars. Uh, Now it says Karloff sometimes slept with the makeup on in order to reduce the workload for each morning and to give his face a rest. He braced his head between two books so he wouldn't roll around during the night and damage it. Wow. That's That's what they said. That's pretty cool. And then Pierce would later touch it up. This film is recognized by the American Film Institute. It was named the 87th greatest movie of all time on 100 years, 100 movies. And the line, it's alive, it's alive, was ranked as the 49th greatest movie quote in American cinema. And the film was ranked number 56 on AFI's 100 years, 100 thrills, a list of America's most (laughs) heart-pounding. Okay, so we're going to talk about Frankenstein, the actual movie, now. Frankenstein. So this starts out a little strange. Uh, a guy comes out behind a curtain to introduce the movie to theatergoers. How do you do, Mr. Carl Lemley? Oh, it's Lemley. I was saying it wrong the whole time. Because <clears throat> that's where I first heard it. Yeah. That feels it would be a little unkind to present this picture without just a word of friendly warning. We are about to unfold the story of Frankenstein. A man of science who sought to create a man after his own image without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with the two great mysteries of creation, life and death. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It may even horrify you. So if any of you feel that you do not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now's your chance to, uh, well, we warned you. <laughs> <laughs> and people ran out of the
3: theater. As fast as they could. The fire exits couldn't
2: even hold them all. (laughs) So the first scene is a funeral, and we see two people lurking about as the gravedigger fills in the grave. And one of the guys lurking looks familiar, and he should because he's played by Renfield in Dracula. This movie came out before Dracula, but in Dracula, at least, we got to see him act a little normal in the beginning. Right. So this character is Fritz. When the gravedigger is done, the two guys come out from behind a raw iron fence uh, with shovels. One is Fritz and the other is Henry Frankenstein. They start digging up the grave. Now there's some scary-ass statue next to the grave. Yes, there is. <laughs> I mean, it's huge. It's probably 10 feet tall. It looks like the Grim Reaper what, leaning on a sword or something. Yep. Now they take the wooden casket and they're pulling it on some wagon. The area that they're in looks kind of like what they used in Dracula. You know, it has that same kind of desolate look to it yep now they come upon a body hanging from a post and fritz climbs up and to cut it down the body like hits the ground and then uh henry says that they can't use it because the neck is broken i think fritz says what about the guy in the box now they don't even look i don't even think they look at the guy i don't know how you can tell if a brain's good or not and then says we must find another brain so next we're at uh, goldstadt medical college and we see a doctor giving a presentation about the human brain. One is normal and one is someone named Abby. Abby normal. No, that the wrong <laughs> movie. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, it's abnormal. I think it actually says abnormal. That's probably where they got it from. Yeah. So, after the place clears out, Fritz breaks in and steals the brain. Before he takes the brain, he picks up the normal brain and he thinks he hears someone and drops it on the floor. And he grabs the abnormal brain. Yep. So, the next scene, we uh, first see Henry's friend, Victor, and Henry's fiance Elizabeth. And Victor, I think, is trying to horn in on Elizabeth. Yeah. They're worried about Henry and his experiments. And the last time Victor saw Henry was three weeks ago. So, they go off to visit Victor's old professor, Dr. Waldman. And it's with a W, but that's how they say it, Waldman. And he tells Henry about, he tells them about Henry wanting to create life. So Elizabeth and Victor insist on visiting Henry at his laboratory. Dr. Waldman says they would not be very welcome. He at first doesn't want to go with them, but then he agrees. Just like Elizabeth all of a sudden wants to go with Victor after saying she has gone to bed. So the next scene we see Henry and Fritz in the laboratory, and we get our first glimpse at Frank, uh, I was going to (laughs) say Frankenstein here, the monster, his arm, and his head, which, which is bandaged up. So, Elizabeth, Victor, and uh, uh, Waldman are soon heard knocking, and Fritz goes down and tells them to go away. But a big storm is brewing outside, and after pleading and pleading, especially after Henry realizes Elizabeth is there, he lets them all in. But he still doesn't want them in the laboratory. That is until Victor calls Henry crazy, and to prove that he isn't crazy, he all wants them to witness the experiment.
3: Which is hilarious (laughs) to me. Let Mm -hmm. me prove to you I'm not crazy by...
2: Bringing this monster to life. Yeah, this, these dead parts back to life.
3: <laughs> that he built with his hands. He emphasized that many times. <laughs> the body he built with his hand.
1: The brain you stole, Fritz. Think of it. The brain of a dead man. Waiting to live
3: again in a body I made. With my own hands.
2: With my own hands. So they all go upstairs into the... Laboratory. He tells them to sit and then he goes into how he first did experiments on animals and a heart. Well, the doctor is nosy and is actually looking at the monster. Yeah, he's trying to. And he's like,
3: you know, goes over and yells at him to
2: sit down. Yeah. Or whatever. (laughs) And he explains to Dr. Waldman that he put together body parts for this experiment. And he starts the experiment and the monster is lifted up on a pretty haphazard uh, table Mm -hmm. up to the ceiling. There's a lot of thunder and buzzing noises and sparks. But one thing I noticed is that nothing really is hooked up to the monster. No. Because <laughs> later on we notice he has bolts. Right. Which would be good to, like, you know, like jumper cables or something. Mm-hmm. After they bring the monster down, the monster's hand moves and Henry starts yelling, it's alive. And next scene we see Victor, Elizabeth and Victor and Henry's father, Baron. This scene is
3: just funny to me, too.
2: So he's upset because he hasn't seen Henry in a while, and no one knows what's going on with him.
3: He accuses his son son of cheating on Elizabeth.
1: There is another woman, and I'm going to find her.
3: He's, like, Mm -hmm. convinced that he's having multiple affairs, and that's why Mm -hmm. he hasn't seen him forever. (laughs) And it's like, okay, why did you go to that
2: theory? (laughs) Like, what made you think that? Too much booze, maybe. Yeah, and then the um, Burgermeister shows up. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm going to call him. Isn't it? This- <laughs> What's his- <laughs> he is something Meister? And he wants to know when the wedding is going to take place. And the whole town seems to be ready for the wedding. It's a small town, but somehow no one has informed Elizabeth and Henry. I guess we need to get this wedding going. Mm-hmm. And next we see Doctor Waldman and Henry. Henry tells him the brain he used was from Dr. Waldman's own laboratory, laboratory, and the doctor doesn't seem too upset about it. Isn't it the brain of a criminal, though, or something? Yeah, he tells him it was a criminal brain, but he doesn't want it back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Not that one. But he doesn't say anything about the smashed other brain. Right. I mean, the brain's dead, but, you know. Yeah. And he says only evil can come of it. So next... I think it's Dr. Waldman and Henry, aren't they? In, they're in a room. This is when the monster comes up. I was going to say, this and they're fighting for their life, in a sense. Yeah. So the monster has somehow walked up a flight of steps backwards. Because <laughs> when he opens the door, <laughs> he's backwards and he turns around. But I, I, I think it's for the um, audience goer, you know. Yeah. Not to see his face right away. And I say here, yeah, I always wondered about the bolts coming out of his neck. Well, I want to know what they injected him with,
3: too, because the Mm -hmm. doctor has to kind of sneak up behind him and he he sticks a needle in his neck, like a tranquilizer type of thing. But it doesn't work right away. And then finally, out of nowhere, the monster is choking Mm -hmm. Frankenstein, I think it is. Yeah. And he all of a sudden just falls over in a (laughs) heap.
2: Henry has the monster sit down and he opens a skylight. I don't know, almost like a pet trick, because the monster puts his—I think he puts his arms up, you know, looking at the sunlight. But then Fritz comes in and runs in with his torch, and we discover the monster doesn't like fire. And then they chain up the uh, the monster, and they start beating him with whips. And Fritz seems to love taunting him with his torch. Freaking monster abuse. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> This was outlawed in 1974. So next scene, uh, Henry and Dr. Volkman rush down to the chamber. Frankenstein is being held in after hearing Fritz screaming. And they find the monster has broken from his tra- uh, chains and Fritz is hanging. Which is odd because, you know, Fritz was just screaming with the monster. Like, I don't know if he was hanging from the chain. I don't know. That was yeah. weird. Yeah. So Dr. Volkman wants to kill the monster with an injection. And with his suggestion, Henry comes back with a needle and a torch. So Frankenstein fights Dr. Volkman after he injects him and tries to strangle Henry before he passes out. And the funniest is when Frankenstein is waving his hands and then he makes this little whimper. Before falling down. Yeah, he just crumbles. So Victor shows up with Elizabeth and her father. Uh, They hide Frankenstein before (laughs) they get there. Before they get to the front though, They don't
3: chain him up or anything. They just stick him in a room.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and then Henry passes out in front of Baron and Elizabeth. So Henry is sick, but we don't know what it is, but I'm thinking it just exhaustion, you know? hmm So Henry goes to stay with his dad and Elizabeth while Dr. Volkman is in charge of the monster. And then Frankenstein ends up killing Dr. Volkman when he goes to cut into him.
3: Yeah, he strangles him from behind, though. Did you notice that? Oh. His arm, like, comes alive, and then, like, he's got, like, the back of his neck. It was really
2: weird. And we don't know what Dr. Volkman was trying to do or thought. Maybe he was dead. Right. I don't know why he's cutting into him. Yeah. And then Henry finally asked Elizabeth when they're getting married. And all the townspeople's heads explode at this great news. And they end up burning down the village. No. (laughs) They're so happy. Okay. I made that up. It's now Henry and Elizabeth's wedding day. Baron get, keeps getting everyone to toast the House of Frankenstein over and over, keep getting sloshed.
1: Now, now, how about a little drink, eh?
2: Come on. Here's a health
1: to a son of the House of Frankenstein. A son of the House of Frankenstein.
2: So Frankenstein, in the meantime, makes his way to a house outside the village where we see a father and daughter. And this is the scene we talked about. And the father mentions that they'll be going to the village soon to celebrate. And the father leaves his daughter so he can finish up some work. And she goes over to the lake that's right near the house. She encounters Frankenstein. (laughs) And she's picking flowers. Yeah, looks like daisies. And they're throwing them into the water. And Frankenstein is also doing that. And then he picks her up and throws her into the water. Now, somehow the girl never learned how to swim and why she didn't venture off into the lake and drown before this. Because <laughs> I know when you have a small child and you're looking for a house, I mean, maybe he inherited the house, but you might not want to be near water, especially if there's not a fence or anything. Right. I'm just a responsible parent. I don't know. Maybe. And then, if memory serves correct, we go into
3: the crazy scene where you just see dancing like, it's like a German beer fest type of just people dancing Oh yeah! Like cra-
2: it's just music and... <laughs> it's like, turns into a musical.
3: Yeah, for like three minutes it felt like an eternity <laughs> again. <laughs> I'm like, what is going on? Why am I just watching this random dancing?
1: hmm <laughs> I'm afraid. Terribly afraid.
2: So Elizabeth is eventually worried that Dr. Volkman has not arri- arrived yet. And they soon find out he's been murdered. And Henry locks Elizabeth in the room. Victor is is telling the guests that the monster has been seen in the hills terrorizing the mountainside. And all of a sudden you hear a moaning sound. Yeah. You know? Yeah. (laughs) And it's not your stomach. And after the moan, Victor exclaims that the monster is upstairs. Yeah. So he automatically knows he's upstairs in the house. Yeah. And how did he just walk in the house without the people that go upstairs? I was wondering the same thing. And they start searching the house.
3: And they look in the most ridiculous places. <laughs> <laughs> they literally, like, pull the table back. And they're like, oh, yeah.
2: nope, he's not back there. <laughs> yeah, He's not hiding back there. <laughs> so the monster uh, climbs through a window of the room Elizabeth is in and mm. attacks her. But she, I guess, is apparently okay. She screams, but mm-hmm. she's just laying there. And don't know what happened. And then we see the man whose daughter drowned. He carries her through the town and goes directly to the Burgermeister. And he tells him that she's been murdered. And I guess somehow they know it's the, the monster. I don't know. Yeah, that was... If
3: I, I think he said something like, why did you bring her here? Or,
2: <laughs> something <laughs> yeah. like that. And I was like, what? Yeah. Go bury her. <laughs> uh. Henry leaves Elizabeth in Victor's care. And Victor does not object to this. The Burgermeister organizes uh, search parties to track down the monster. This is the thing. All the men in the gang are going through the village with their torches, passing all the houses. Now, he's just been seen at a house. All of a sudden, he's in the hills again, I guess they know. Yeah, he's, well, he ends up in a windmill, right? Well, they don't search one single house. No. You know, he's just running through the town to get to the woods and the hills. This is a great scene, though, with the torches, everybody okay. gathering up. And leaving the women behind, I noticed that uh, yeah they were not allowed to come along. And again, we won't go into the ending, but somehow, somehow Henry—I'm not even going to say what happened—but he survives a fall onto a windmill blade, and he—I don't know how many feet he drops. Yeah, no, I don't know. But he amazingly survives.
3: And I don't know if that was a <clears throat> stunt or if that was like a real thing that they did. But yeah. that seemed like a pretty pretty
2: big drop. Mm-hmm. So the Baron is still drinking.
1: How about a little drink, eh?
2: (laughs) And he's still toasting to the House of Frankenstein. What happened to the monster? Did Henry fully recover? Or did his his friend, Victor, warn in on Elizabeth? Or did Elizabeth end up marrying the monster? Hmm. You'll have to find out. The world may never know. (laughs) So that's one of my utmost favorite uh, monster movies is Frankenstein. I could watch that again and again. Especially in the sequel, which maybe we'll talk about next year, Bride of Frankenstein. I have not seen that. That, That's a great one.
3: Yeah. No, Frankenstein was really good. The the dancing in the middle is the one thing that was like, what am I watching here? (laughs) But otherwise, from start to finish, it was a really good movie. I loved, like, I don't know if there was real rain or if they had Mm -hmm. some kind of effect to make the rain, but it was pouring. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So whatever they did, that was really cool for that scene. You touched on the electrical, you know, bringing Frankenstein to life. Yeah. Being such a memorable moment. But, you know, you can't talk about that enough. It was really cool to watch. Even in black (laughs) and white, it definitely got its point across. So that was really exciting. And then, I mean, the only thing, I didn't think much of it with the little girl, but it, it didn't feel like that was needed in a sense. But, I mean, otherwise, great movie. And so, then there was one. Yes, the Invisible Man. I have a new favorite <laughs> Universal monster. After doing this little nice. this mm-hmm. little watch along, I was blown away by this movie. Yeah, absolutely. I know we'll get into it. But yeah, the effects are, are great. The effects are great. <clears throat> the The whole concept is great, and I love how they how they did the Invisible Man in mm-hmm. a sense. Yeah, they dress him up to so that you can see him. Mm-hmm. But then even when you can't see him, you got the footprints or yeah. something mm-hmm. to make sure that you know where he's at. Yeah. And that was just so cool.
2: So this was released actually on Halloween, 1933. Nice. Because I think most of these films were released in December for some reason. And it's 70 minutes long. Budget was 328000 Has a 7.9 out of 10. 78 audience score, Rotten Tomatoes. Cast is... Gloria Stewart, who is Flora, and she was in Titanic. Like I can say, she's she very was the pretty. the old woman in Titanic. Yeah. Uh, Claude Rains is Dr. Jack Griffin, who is, of course, we find out the Invisible Man. Spoiler alert. <laughs> William Harrington is Dr. Arthur Kemp. Henry Travers is Dr. Cranley. Una O'Connor, who is incredible, just as Jenny. So she was also in Frankenstein. And she is just the the part of the movie that makes, you know, just her yelling and screaming and mm-hmm. <laughs> she is the in one of the uh owners of the inn. Um so uh let's see. Which is funny because
3: I didn't even know that was an inn at first. You see the yeah. invisible man come in and it looks like yeah. it's an old school saloon or something. Yeah, a
2: bar. Yeah. <laughs> But then there's apartments.
3: Yeah. And he's like, I need a room. And they're like, we don't rent them out. And he's like, I need a room.
2: (laughs) We ain't got none ready, not at this time of year. And then they can't get rid of him. And believe it or not, we also have Dwight Fry. He's a reporter. Nice. So he has, you know, a small role in the movie. Yep. Following the success of Dracula, Richard L. Schaeher and Robert Flory suggested to Universal Pictures as early as 1931. Then an adaptation of H.G. Wells' The Invisible Man would make a suitable follow-up. And both Carl Lemly and Carl Lemly Jr. Op- opted to make a film adaptation of Frankenstein in- instead. So while Frankenstein was shooting, Universal bought the rights to The Invisible Man from Wells on September 22nd, 1931 for $10,000. And he demanded script approval from Universal. Wow. So principal photography of the invisible man began at the end of june nineteen thirty three and concluded in late August. All of the special effects shots were filmed in what Gloria Stewart recalled as an in, in utmost secrecy during production. The special effects work took another two months to complete, and universal press clips falsely claim that the invisibility invisibility effects were optical effects done with mirrors, which they weren't. James Whale worked closely with John P. Fulton on the film's special effects. Fulton revealed how the effects were done in September 1934 issue of American Cinematographer, stating they had been shot against a completely black set with walls and floors covered in black velvet to make it non-reflective. The actor was then covered head to foot with black velvet tights and wore whatever clothes he required for the scene. With this negative, a print was made and a duplicate negative was made to serve as mats for printing. Then with an ordinary printer, they made a composite first printing of the positive of the background and normal action using the negative mat to mask the area where the invisible man was to move. That sounds like a lot of work. Yep. So Fulton said the principal difficulty of this was matching the lighting on the visible closed shot with the general lighting used in the scenes and fixing small imperfections Such as scenes with eye holes, which were touched up in the film frame by frame with a brush and opaque dye. Wow. (laughs) So a lot of editing work, it sounds like. Yeah. For other scenes where Reigns is unwrapping the bandage from his head for the villagers, Reigns' own head is hidden below his collar. (laughs) And the bandages are being taken off a thin wire frame. That's cool. That was really cool. And he, you want to (laughs) see? He (laughs) starts unwrapping himself and it's like, uh... And then one effect you mentioned, or you mentioned about the snow, is when he's walking through the snow. Yep. So how did they do that? The footprints were created through a system of footprint-shaped platforms held in place with pegs underneath a layer of rock salt, which emulated snow. As the pegs were pulled, the platform would drop, creating a footprint. Interesting. Okay. The crew pulled the pegs in sequence, which on film gave the appearance of Griffin walking. Right. So the music is Heinz uh, Romeheld composed the score. He would later score Dracula's Daughter, The Black Cat, and he won an Academy Award for Yankee Doodle Dandy. Now the film score is only heard in the opening during the last seven minutes of the film and while the closing credits run. The music is also heard again in Werewolf of London, The Black Cat, and two serial films, Plash Gordon and Buck Rogers. Buck Rogers, 1939 So we're going to go into the film itself and this is our last segment. It starts an invisible man walks into a bar. Well actually that's how the movie begins, but it's an inn, right. You don't know he's
3: invisible though when he walks in because he's fully clothed. Yeah. <clears throat> he just they give you the impression he looks rough because the guy behind the bar is like freaked out by him or you know, a little scared or mm-hmm. tentative. And he calls his wife, who's also freaked out by him. So, I don't know. The portrayal is that he's, he looks rough.
2: And I don't know at the time if people realized right away that that was going to be the Invisible Man. I mean, mm-hmm. he's wrapped up kind of weirdly.
3: Right. Because it's super cold outside. Yeah. He's bundled up in, you know, a yeah. big jacket and stuff.
2: Yeah. So, the inn is the Lion's Head Inn. And it's in the English village of Ipping in Sussex. To be exact.
3: It reminded me of an American werewolf in London, that pub that they go mm-hmm. to. I don't yeah. know. Just the sign looked similar. And mm-hmm. that's what it reminded <laughs> me of.
2: Yeah. Now, for some reason, they don't like people staying over, I guess, this time of year, which you would think would be the opposite. Right. Because if you're inside drinking for hours, you don't want to trudge out into the snow. Yeah. So the inn owner Jenny, she goes up to bring the Invisible Man some mustard, she forgot, after he checks in. And she walks in on him eating and he has no mouth. So she goes back down into the bar area and she tells them about the bandages and surmises that he's been in a horrible accident. One patron says that he bumped his head on the prison wall getting over it. (laughs) So the next scene, we see a woman, Flora, who is played by Gloria Stewart, along with her father, who seems to be some kind of scientist, Mm -hmm. chemist. Now, Flora's worried about Jack since he's run off. At this point, we can figure out that Dr. Jack Griffin is the invisible man. So, Jenny goes up to Jack's room and tries to bring him lunch, but something's blocking the door and she bursts in knocking over something. And Jack has basically set up a science lab in his room with his tubes and beakers. (laughs) Jenny is furious and wants him out. And if he doesn't leave, she's calling the cops. So, Jenny's husband, Herbert, has a talk with Jack, and Jack pleads with him to let him stay, and tells him he's had a serious accident, and pretty soon he's beating up Herbert. <laughs> uh, the cops show up to arrest him, and Jack gets pissed since he just wanted a room to work, you know, work in for the antidote. Right. He's trying maybe. to figure out how to fix his problem, <clears throat> and he starts unraveling his bandages, revealing that he's invisible. There is a lot of humor in this movie, which yeah. is great. Yeah. Because when he's unraveling, I think it's Constable Jaffer's. I think he has some of the best lines. He says,
1: Look, he's all eaten away.
2: They run back down the stairs, but come back up. And Jack's only wearing a shirt.
3: Yeah, once they get downstairs, they kind of come to the realization of, we can't let him strip down naked, or we won't be able to see him.
2: Yeah. And Jaffers says that as one of the bar patrons says, put the handcuffs on. And Jaffer's response is...
1: How can I up a blooming shirt? <laughs> yeah.
2: Yep. So the Invisible Man escapes. The whole town now knows there's an Invisible Man on the loose. That part was funny to me.
3: The town just understands that there's an Invisible Man loose. They
2: don't yeah. question
3: that. They don't, mm-hmm. like, what are you talking about? An Invisible Man? They just, sure, there's an Invisible Man loose. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and I don't know if that's the scene where he's tipping over bikes and just... Playing around with people, hats and stuff, where he's running around doing different things. If
3: that was in the middle or Yeah,
2: here. So Dr. Cranley and Dr. Kemp are in Jack Griffin's lab looking for clues, and Dr. Cranley finds a note that indicates Dr. Griffin was using monocaine. According to Dr. Cranley, Monocaine's a terrible drug. So, Dr. Kemp goes back to his house and hears a news report on the radio about an invisible man on the loose. Jack is actually in the room. He's sitting in the room. He starts talking to Kemp. And Kemp gets him some pajamas to wear and he draws the blinds in his office downstairs because he doesn't want anybody knowing that the invisible man, like, they're going to see him anyway. But. Right. So, Jack tells him how everything happened and he wants Kemp to join him as his invisible partner. And mentions going on a murder spree. Yeah. He tells Kemp he needs to go retrieve his notebooks he left back at the inn. And Jack is in the car naked, basically. Uh, the invisible man. And it's cold out, so all the townspeople, they're giving confessions as to what they witnessed, uh, what they saw or didn't see. This is pretty much at the, I think, at the bar. Yep. Jack and, and Kemp show up. Kemp is outside and Jack is to go in and retrieve Jack's notebooks. tells him to keep an eye on the window above him as he stands outside the building. Now, Inspector Bird, who is questioning townspeople, declares that the whole thing is a hoax. He doesn't believe their stories, but just as he declares that, all hell breaks loose when Jack starts throwing stuff at everyone. Jenny starts screaming that the Invisible Man is there. He's here. She's running out of there saying, don't leave me, don't leave me. Just run. I think she runs out of there. Um, Jack chokes the inspector and hits him with a chair, somehow killing him. Yeah. Uh, And next we see Jack at Kemp's house, and he basically has Kemp in his command. He tells him what is expected of him and where he cannot go so that he's not detected. Wants him to even clean his fingernails. Apparently, being invisible does have its downfalls. Right. Because if you get any dirt on you... You can be seen. Yeah. So because of the inspector's death, the chief of detective organizes a search party, and he expects to gather 10,000 men, which is most likely impossible, because I looked up this town. Now, I know it's a movie. And in 1931, this town had 400 residents. (laughs) So where are you getting 10,000 men? Especially men, not just people, right? Yeah. Kemp calls Dr. Cranley for help, then the police, and tells them that the invisible man is asleep in his house. Their reply is that they only have five men available. So see, they wanted 10,000, they're complaining that we only have five men. Dr. Cranley and Flora show up at the house, and Flora wants to help Jack. She says her father can help him, but Jack apparently doesn't want help, and he's pretty much loving the power he has now at being invisible. I mean, who wouldn't? Right. He says, and this is an odd comment, that even the moon is frightened of him. <laughs> he tells Flora to leave. The cops show up at the house. Jack tells Kemp he's going to kill him. <laughs> That's and, funny. And specifically tomorrow night at 10 o'clock. 10 o'clock, yep. yeah.
0: I shall kill you even if you hide in the deepest cave of the earth. At 10 o'clock tomorrow night, I shall kill you.
2: Now Jack's outside and taunting the police. He swings one officer around and takes his pants, and we see a woman running down the road screaming and a pair of pants skipping after her. (laughs) And this is weird, because he's he's running around the countryside causing havoc, but I was pretty shocked by one scene where he made a train go off the tracks and went down a cliff. Yeah. Yeah. He killed all those people. Mm -hmm. That's where we're going to stop with that. We're not going to tell you the ending. Do they capture him? kill him does he get away i don't know so that's jeremy's favorite that was my favorite i probably could have put that higher you know it
3: it was probably you know i said about dracula how i went into it with such high expectations and i was disappointed yeah i think the reverse happened with this one i had kind of no expectations because i haven't Mm -hmm. really heard about the invisible man yeah and i watched it and i was laughing Mm -hmm. and having fun and just so engaged in the film.
2: I've read some of H.G. Wells, because he wrote War of, War the, of Worlds. the Worlds. Yeah. yeah. What else did he... He wrote... I think he wrote Time Machine or something like that. Okay. It was made into a movie. Okay. Yeah. He was a little... He was definitely before his time with his thoughts. So yeah. So we thank you for, if you listen to both podcasts, sitting through us talking about some monster movies, and we did talk some music, so...
3: Yeah, and if you're catching this on the Horror Con Lounge podcast, be sure to check out No Good Music. That's K-N-O-W, Good Music. I mm-hmm. am on that show often. Rob and Mike? Matt. Rob and Matt. <laughs> <laughs> Rob and Matt are the... We mostly do. Matt mostly does interviews. Yeah, they're and... the two hosts if I'm not sitting in. Rob yeah. is the permanent... He's the brains of the
2: operation. I would went... He brings me in for the looks. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah, so we're crossing over our episodes, which, or our podcast, which is great. Yeah,
3: yeah, so Kristen and I are going to do a little, we're going to do a little intro and a closure here, but kind of talking with her, she had no interest in doing mm-hmm. the Universal Monsters at all, and, you know, for me, being a big horror fan, this is the start, I, I think. Yeah. When you think of horror, it starts with the universal monsters you mm-hmm. can't really go anywhere else i mean i guess you could argue maybe nosferatu but that's a silent picture more of i don't know it's a little bit different but
2: these as a complete the total package yeah yeah
3: and you get you know how it began some of the effects some of the basics in film mm-hmm. with sounds and dialogue and plot and storyline and th- I, this is something i've always wanted to do uh, when Kristen said no, but Rob said yes, it was a perfect opportunity for us to cover mm-hmm. six
2: amazing films.
3: Whether I liked them all or not doesn't matter. They're still absolutely brilliant.
2: And yeah, it was at the beginning of the horror genre, yeah, the very beginning.
3: And they're always gonna they're always gonna hold up because mm-hmm. that's
2: where it began.
3: So thank you yeah. for oh. taking the time today mm-hmm. to do this. And thank you. <laughs> I had a lot of fun, and I'm excited. You know, mm-hmm. you mentioned potentially looking at the sequels. Mm -hmm. as a future episode, I think that would be a lot of fun. So, you know, I'm up for that challenge if you want to do it.
2: Yeah, and like I said, we like doing... For October, we like doing uh, horror, but also mix in a little music stuff. Yep. And be sure to check out the interview with Sarah. She was great. She was fun to chat with and hear some of her stories, so... Yeah, we'll be meeting Sarah at the Chiller Theater at the end of October. We'll get to say hi to her. Yeah, and if you're listening... Right now on No Good Music, you need to go over, listen to not the same. You're not going to listen to the same podcast, but go check out Horrorcon Lounge, Jeremy's podcast. I don't know how many shows you guys have. We just got your year an, to up say, to your year anniversary. We are
3: approaching our one year anniversary. It'll it'll have happened by the time this is published. Yeah.
2: So if you like horror movies, you need to listen to their podcast. So
3: yeah, we try and do a weekly. Either reviews, interviews, mm-hmm. um, we go to a lot of conventions, so some stories about that. But we try and find kind of the lesser known movies or the movies that may be overlooked because of those big box office hits that are always talked about. We touch on those as well, but we love to find the
2: hidden gems. They kind of do what we do with the music podcast. Is we'll talk about the famous bands, but we'll also talk about bands you may never have heard of. Right. Same with horror movies. Yeah, talk about the famous ones, and then the not so famous. And I have checked out a lot of movies that they've recommended that I, some I have never heard of, turned out to be pretty good movies. Yeah. We're about to leave you guys, so thanks for listening again, and uh, remember to turn off that TV and turn up the music, and you'll hear us again soon. This has been a special Hurricane Lounge and No Good Music crossover edition. You've been listening to No Good Music, exit music by the band 99%. Today's show is produced and edited by Rob J. Lilly and recorded at the Did You Say 7 Studios in Washington, New Jersey. You can find No Good Music on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, Pandora, and almost anywhere you listen to podcasts.